New Testament reading tonight is Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will anoint, appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, Father, what a privilege it is to gather together. You've called us here. You're the one that has drawn us here. Whether we're someone with a long time faith or very little faith. And one of the ways you reveal yourself is through your living word. Would you open our, the eyes of our heart? We need you to work in us. We're too desperate to play church. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we have been, uh, as many of you know, working through this study in uh, the New Testament, Book of Acts, uh, about how God transforms a community by his spirit to begin to mirror what Jesus Christ's ministry looked like. And he started that work with the early church, and he continues to this day with it. And over the last couple of weeks, what we've seen is as much as there were all these ideal things happening, there was also opposition. There were threats. The first threat was a, a physical threat that came from the religious leaders that orchestrated the death of Jesus. They turned their persecution upon the new church. And then we looked last week at an internal threat. In this church, there began this like wonderful culture of self-sacrifice and generosity, meeting material needs, physical needs. And then a couple arises up in the community with hypocrisy and lies about their generosity to try to win praise for themselves. And this week, we look at a third threat, which I'll call the threat of inequality, of inequity. Now, these things, when you look back to the formation of Israel, written into their law code, was this idea of justice and mercy. You find it all throughout. And this was because of, particularly, uh, ordinances about caring for the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the foreigner, the alien. And this was because who God declared himself to be, the Lord whose righteousness reaches high to the heavens and his justice and judgments go deep into the sea. This is who he is. 
But even Israel, even his own people, began to fail to turn from doing that work. And so you would hear through the prophets, the Lord would say, Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. We heard a different prophet as we read through Isaiah. This was Zechariah. And this is a refrain. It's, just, it's replete throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And so it's no surprise when the Messiah comes, Jesus Christ, that the focus of his ministry would be so much upon those that were vulnerable, those that were poor, those that were struggling, the widow, the orphan, those that were needy. Because he was God incarnate, the Lord incarnate. Even on his cross, as he's dying, realizing that his mother, who was already a widow, would have nowhere to go, he entrusts her to the disciple John. To his last breath, he's caring for a widow. So, as this new community forms, it's critical, critical that they withstand this threat, just as it is for us. And so I want to look at the threat itself and then the response of the church to the threat, okay? Let's look at those two things together. First of all, the threat itself, and it happens in two ways. It happens, it's expressed in the community, and it's expressed in the ministry. So we'll look at those two things. Now, again, I have to sort of orient us to appreciate what's happening. For those of you that have been tracking along, or maybe this is your first time, uh, before the disciples witnessed the risen Jesus Christ ascend into heaven, he said to them, you're going to take this good news, literally the word gospel, you're going to take this good news of my grace and mercy all over the earth. But don't try this yourself. You need to wait until my spirit comes upon you and empowers you to do that. And the day that the spirit falls, known as Pentecost in the church, this wonderful miracle occurs. Now during that time, as we learned, Jews from all all over the ancient world were coming for a high feast in Jerusalem. Diaspora Jews, that means dispersed outside of Palestine. And they come into Jerusalem, and as they begin to hear the disciples preach the gospel, they hear it in their own language. It's not that they just hear it, the disciples are speaking in their own language. Now, for some of these, and you think of, for many of them, for centuries, they had been in cultures where they learned different languages, where they had absorbed the culture. They were ethnically Jewish, but they were culturally really of that place. And so God is speaking to them in their culture. And then as 3,000 of them hear Peter preach, they become followers, they get converted. And by this time in the text, there's probably close to 10,000 in the church, which accounts for some of this uh, giving and generosity we've seen because some of them relocated to Jerusalem. Of course, they had to get reestablished. They had no money. They had no livelihood. So the church steps up to meet needs. The church had picked up Israel's tradition of meeting needs in a daily offering, a daily giving. 
Now, one way they could communicate there, you had these people of all these languages. Back then, Greek was sort of the trade language, just like English functions much in the world today, an ability for uh, just a common language where people can do business. And so, you had all these, you, you, you had a majority of the church who were Hebrew Aramaic speakers, and then you had a minority of the church that were Hellenist Greek speakers, and they were probably worshiping in different synagogues, and it's likely that the apostles, either through translation or they could speak Greek, would instruct them. That's the setup for what's going on. But it comes to light, it comes to light, that in this community, that minority group of Greek-speaking Jews, the widows are getting passed over for the daily distribution of the mercy and the food. Um, this distribution was sort of like a Meals on Wheels. You know, they did it all the time. It was something official, and it was something important, and it happened in the community. And it's literally called, uh, those of you on the diaconate will appreciate, the daily Diakonia. That's what the Greek literally says. The, the work of the diaconate, right, flows out of this idea, our diaconate. Now, the question is, how did this happen? How did this happen? Well, we can begin to unpack this. First of all, um, because of the language issue, obviously... Uh, the majority culture of the church, the majority culture wasn't in meaningful relationship or proximity to the minority, meaning they just didn't see what was going on, right? They were too distant to actually see the injustice, the inequity occurring. Um, and, you know, language can be a tough thing. Those of you that have immigrated here, or children of first-generation immigrants, you know, like, language is a big deal, right? If you can get in on the language, well, then you can advocate. You can move ahead. But if, if you don't have language, you don't have a voice. It's easy to be passed over. It's easy to be invisible, right? And so you had that group that was facing that inequity, that challenge, or rather, the inequity flows out of it. I was thinking back uh, to when Meg and I were, uh, before we came here, uh, we were up in Boston, Cambridge, and along with doing campus ministry, I was an assistant pastor at a church that was a Anglo church and a Brazilian church. And uh, the, the service in the evening was Brazilian, and uh, it would be translated. But we would often have lunches together. And I remember that feeling when you'd go into the fellowship hall. And of course, you know, you, you know polite and niceness and all that. But when it was time to sit somewhere, I want to go to the English-speaking table, <laughs> right? Because I just feel awkward. I don't know. You know, I'm just going to. It was just easier, right, to distance myself, easier to avoid that. You can imagine a similar thing happening in the first century church, right? And when that gap happens, right, it, it's easier for lots of things to happen. The, the body of Christ that is to be one when the majority culture is distanced from the minority culture in the church, the oneness is sacrificed, but also it's just easier, right, 
when we're distant, to kind of just stereotype or, or assume things or just treat someone like they're not really a full person. That's what happens. Now, it goes beyond language, right? Because language is a doorway into culture. And as I said, many of these uh, Jews, Hellenist Jews, have been living in other cultures for centuries. And so this can even happen culturally, right, in the church. Even in a church that shares a common language, when you have different cultures, it's just easier to say, you know, I'm going to just sort of step back. And it's easier for the majority culture to say, well, I'm going to just sort of keep moving on. Um, and again, there's distance. Let me give you two examples here. Uh, first of all, this particular denomination, uh, the Presbyterian Church in America, um, historically has been um, overwhelmingly white, suburban. Um, but for years, as long as I've been in the denomination for close to 27 years. Um, you guys know I'm 35. And... Uh, I started early in ministry. But you know, what you would see, and I would even see this at the Presbytery level, we would have Korean brothers and Chinese speaking brothers and uh, Indian speaking, you know, uh, speaking brothers, but the leadership up front was white, right? Because you know, the minority culture, although present, isn't really represented. You know, they're not seen. And that's also an issue here, and we'll get to that when we talk about the response. But I was also thinking about the distance, and this is me self-confessing, whether it's the distance that happens through language or the distance that happens through culture or class or experience. So I preached at our network, we're a network of churches, this past spring. Some of you may have been at that service. And during that service, I was sharing just what I, some of the praises and uh, the good things that God has done. And I was moving through the different groups in our church, and I mentioned uh, the organization Auxilio, which was birthed out of uh, Keith Moore and Kara Callahan that served now, I think, over 100 churches. And, you know, and I made a, a little offhanded joke, you know, trying to be funny. I said, and we're praise God for Auxilio and all the ways they help us and keep us out of jail. And then, you know, a, a couple of weeks later, uh, the word came back to me. Um, well, you know, Glenn, someone had mentioned that uh, they had brought a friend and that friend had just been released from incarceration. And they also had a family on death row family member, right? I've never been to jail. Jail's something you can joke about. What was it? A gap, right? A gap that's occurring, distance. Now, let me say this. I don't think what's going on here is the Hebrew and Aramaic speakers are going, aha, let's not give their widows food. Or, aha, let's just pass by. Let's, you know, let's marginalize these people. All they had to do was just be themselves. I mean, all you have to do is just be an autopilot, right? I was just sort of being myself when I made that crack. And God calls his church, as we see in this text, to an intentionality. 
right? He says, no, I don't want you just to sort of do this. And this will work itself. I mean, it's going to take decades in the church. You go to the book of Galatians, Peter. I mean, we don't have time to go into this. But this will be a problem that starts and keeps rolling. And it's rolled throughout the church, through the American church, our experience, through this denomination. But God calls his people to an intentionality to move, to move closer, meaningful relationship, especially majority culture toward the minority culture. Now, let me get to the second threat before I get to the response. Uh, The second threat was the threat of inequity in ministry. So uh, after this is brought to the attention of the apostles, uh, the apostles say it wouldn't be right to forsake the preaching and the prayer. There are two pillars of Jesus Christ's ministry, the word of the gospel that he preached and the deeds of the gospel. And the way he wanted to make sure that the church never forgot that is he instituted elders and diaconate, right? These are the two things. And in this passage, both of them are being threatened, both the deeds and the word. So let's now move to the response. Four things I'll mention. What was the response to the threat? The first thing was, the minority, the minority group, the Hellenistic uh, Greek Jews there, advocated for themselves. Meaning they felt like they had the freedom and strength to say, um, hopefully enough was happening in that culture where they thought, we're going to advocate for ourselves. Uh, it says that a complaint had arisen of this inequity. Now, I remember early on, um, I don't know when this was, Moshe would remember, Uh, but um, two leaders in our community, two leaders of color, non-white leaders, came forward and said, Glenn, can we talk with you? And I said, sure, and we sat down in the office, and they began to just share their experience and the experience of some of their brothers and sisters of color in our community, whether it be some of the comments that have been made or feeling like their experience was sort of like pushed off to the side or not validated. A complaint arose. And out of that complaint, actually, the cultural intelligence ministry was birthed. Because we thought, well, you know something? We need to work on this. We need to learn to listen to each other. We want to be a place where uh, the voice of the minority, however that looks, in whatever culture, can bring their complaint and the, and the response of the majority culture in this passage wasn't stop complaining or if you don't like it here, just leave. Right? That's often how a majority culture will act. We're here, so we were here for it, so just leave. That's not how they respond. They listen. They move in. The people's view, this is interesting, the chosen people are having to learn that that, that word chosen is going to include a lot more. Now, the church is primarily, as I said, ethnically Jewish, but even in the list of seven, we have a list of a Gentile convert. And, of course, the ministry then will flow out, and there'll be loads of Gentiles that will enter. Even then, they're having to understand. Okay, so the first thing is that. The second thing is that the apostles respond sincerely and immediately. They don't get defensive. They don't say, don't bother us because we need to preach. They don't delay and just kind of push it off, push it off. They don't form a a, a two-year study committee. They don't judge their motives. 
They don't judge their interpretation of the minority community. They're one with these brothers and sisters. They, in sincerity, receive what they have to say. They receive it. Another story. So uh, we were about three years in here, and some of you were close to, some of you were like in those log cabin days. Uh, and our first assistant pastor was Duquan. Yes, the famous Duquan, okay, was an assistant pastor. I joke, I was spending time with Russ and Duke the other night, and you know, how many times now when I go off and say, I'm from Grace DC, and immediately they're like, have you ever heard of Russ Whitfield and Duquan? You know, and, I, and I'm just sort of like, you know, faintly. I faintly have heard of them. But we, we were hanging out the other night. I actually love that. I love it. Um, we were hanging out the other night, rare face-to-face -face time with our lead pastors, even though we talk once a week. And as we were talking about the history of church, I said, Duke, you know uh, something I remember? I remember we were about four years in, and you began to start sharing what it was like for you in our church. And again, no, no, no one was like, you know, I hate you, Duke, because you're Korean. It's just like comments. It was feeling lonely, feeling misunderstood. And what I did was I, I, I tried to um, say, oh, 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 well, no, no, that's not your experience. No, Duke, everybody, you know. I didn't receive his experience. And I have thought about it later, and I said, you know why I think I did that, Duke? I think ultimately I was embarrassed and ashamed that the church that I had led and the culture that I had formed has made you feel that way. That I just didn't even see it. I didn't think about how it might experience. This is one of the things I've been talking to pastors about because in the PCA, as the PCA is starting to grow slowly in its desire for cross-cultural ministry to look like the book of Acts, oftentimes churches will want to hire a minority pastor. It's like they're a tropical fish. And they want that tropical fish, but then they bring them back and there's no water in the aquarium. Meaning, like, it's hard to live in the culture. Right? There, there's, there's not places like that. And one of the, there, there's, what, what I mean by that is, you know, they've been invited into a majority culture, but then they're just kind of like left to survive. And one of the beautiful things that God has done is our network, I think he gave us grace to, to like change and adapt so people could begin to flourish. I thank God for that. I credit to not me, everybody else. But the gospel gives us freedom. As a majority culture guy, it gave me freedom to admit it and repent. Uh, let me read this quote to you. The apostles were concerned to maintain the unity of the congregation. They did not allow it to fragment along cultural fault lines. They asked the entire congregation to support a solution that will help all the needy believers, irrespective of their language or cultural background. That's, a, that's an important thing. Okay, two more things. Uh, right, so the uh, minority group advocates for itself. The apostles act sincerely and immediately. They then um, empower the minority. And I know that word gets used all the time. I couldn't think of a better one. They didn't say, well, you're going to need to learn Hebrew or Aramaic. They didn't say that, right? Nor did they say, we'll pick leaders from our group and they'll take care of this problem. They didn't impose a system. 
They entrust them, that community, to pick seven leaders. Now, they don't give on the standards, right? They're saying, like, they got to be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? They got to be committed in their faith and integrity. But by that also, they're saying, you know, this isn't like the, um, this isn't like the corner market in the majority culture, right? God has those believers everywhere. And the 12 have flexibility to add a new group. And by that, they're empowering and encouraging these new leaders. Leaders that then form. And as those leaders show up and start to form, you can imagine those in that community begin to feel like, hey, I have leadership potential. I have gifts. The church begins to become what it should be. You know, minority leaders are critical if this vision of Jesus' church that he wanted, right, distinctive of the Christian faith, unlike other faiths of the ancient world, was it was going to be translated, go into all these nations. And soon as it was translated, Jesus was saying, this is going to culturally belong to everybody. There's going to be leaders of every cultural, racial background. This is the identity of God's one new people. And I, and I want to say now to you, we're still a majority white church. I'm a majority white pastor. But I, I want to say, for those of you brothers and sisters of minority culture, if you feel like there are inequities or you know to say, I, I would love for you to talk to me, talk to Mike, talk to the leadership. This is the kind of culture we want to have. It was demonstrated in the church there. But lastly, they maintain the pillars. Now, the error of the classic liberal church is they stop preaching the word. If you look at you know, the history of the liberal church, especially in America, around the world, they stop preaching the word of the gospel. You know, the idea that you aren't reconciled with God, you're a sinner. Mike said it perfectly earlier with a confession. And you need to be reconciled with God through his one and only son and his death and resurrection. That doesn't get... And so the focus comes on just meeting people's physical needs. Right? And as important as that is, it's not enough. I mean, Jesus said to the paralytic after he healed him, your sins are forgiven. Jesus said to someone else that he healed, go and sin no more. We need more than just our physical needs, met, Right? Our souls are hungry and desperate. We need the gospel. The apostles are on guard. The apostles say it wouldn't be right for us to, they realize if they jump in and start taking care of the problem, waiting on tables, and by that, they're not being dis dismissive or that's prerogative. It just, it means their system they had set up. They said, if, we can't do that because the word of the gospel won't be preached, and it has to be preached. But the error, of course, of the conservative church is to preach and neglect the deeds. And this has been, you know, the deeds of equity and justice. And that's been the error of this denomination and much of the white evangelical church. Slowly coming along, right? But part of its ugly history, but even into the modern world. Both of them have to be there. What we've tried to do from the beginning, we've done it imperfectly. I'll be the first to say, 
We've done it imperfectly, but we have strived to say, we are not gonna fall off either side of that horse. We're gonna cling to the words and the deeds of the gospel. And it's messy, it's hard, especially in Washington, it gets into politics, right? It's very hard and people are passionate and sometimes preachers say things, you are like, he doesn't really know what he's talking about. You know, like I study this for a living, right? I know that. But the words and deeds of the gospel, you're just sort of like, that's what we've sought to hold on to. Both are pillars of the church. Both were represented in the Lord. Both are things that must continue to happen in the community if it's going to be one new people. Now, for those of you that don't know, today is Reformation Day. Anybody knew that? Anybody here know that? And some of you, yeah, some of you guys know, know that. It's Reformation Will, Will Stockdale knows it. He's got his, uh, he's got his, his Luther uh, hat and robe that he'll wear for us later. Um, but, um, you know, uh, one of the creeds of the Reformation, right, was reforming, always reforming. The church is called to always reform. And, and God drops us into different contexts. You know, we're not in the first century. We learn things, but we're not in 1940. We're not in 19... We're like, we're here, right? So we're constantly having to think, where is the church being called to reform? And this is an area historically the Reformed Church has not reformed in, right? But we must, because this is the, this is the only church. This is the Acts Church. And we should take heart because they had these struggles. And we have them too. But we work ahead. And actually, they give us some pretty good advice here of how we need to move ahead. This church is becoming, has been becoming slowly over 20 years. And Lord willing, I pray it'll be more by the time I'm in heaven. More a foretaste of that community. You know, so when you show up in heaven at that big worship service, you're going to show up and go, yeah, this looks like my local church. Hopefully you're not going to show up and go, what? It doesn't look anything like my church. Let's pray. God, help us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this people and what you've done in this story. I thank you for both. Um, Majority culture, brother and sister. Minority culture, brother and sister. Thank you for um, the spirit and heart we aspire toward. In Christ's name, amen.